It is wonderful to be together. Um, hope y'all all enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. Even early service was kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning, so that was fun. Um, we're uh, in our third week of a series walking through Malachi. The other day, Daniel Mayfield, who's going to be here in a few weeks to preach, saw a picture of me working on my lesson, and he said, Malachi, huh? And I said, yeah, they are going to be ready for some relief by the time you get here. And so I picked some, uh, some really tough passages for us to walk through during these last seven weeks that um, I get to preach to you on Sunday mornings. And we're in our third week in Malachi chapter 2. So I would like for you all to open your Bibles or your devices to Malachi chapter 2. I'm not going to have the, um, the verses up on the screen today, so you're going to have to read along with me. Um, while you're turning there, I, like normal, I kind of want to tell a little story. I think sometimes I share too much about our personal lives, but this one, uh, this one is, is, well, that's where most of my experiences come from, so there you have it. The other day, and I'll spare you the details of how we got there, but the Dozier family ended up with two pet mice. Now, now I realize that makes some of your skin crawl just a little bit, um, but let me, let me say, mice are actually pretty good pets. They, uh, it's kind of like a hamster, but it, they're really pretty docile. They hadn't bitten any of the kids. And to be honest, for the first several months of having these pet mice in the house, they were the pride and joy of our children. I mean, they carried them around everywhere like they were little babies and spent a lot of time with I checked my battery this morning and it showed that it still had several bars, but maybe it decided that it wanted to be done. It wasn't real interested in Malachi chapter 2, and I can't blame it, so you get, get buckled up. All right, so back to my story. We have these mice, and they got all of the kids' affections until one day we decided to adopt Meow Meow the cat. <laughs> Now, Meow Meow is a little more of a recent development at the Dozier House, um, but we've had a lot of fun with Meow Meow. But it's been interesting to watch how the kids' affections have shifted from the mice to this sweet new kitty that we adopted. Um, and so far, we've kind of managed to live in equilibrium. Um, though the mice aren't admittedly getting much attention from the kids, they are still getting some attention. So I think we have a problem on our hands. Um, so I'll take this time now to put a plug out there. If anyone is interested in some really friendly pet mice, we have two that we are willing to donate. Um, so far, none of our friend group has taken us up on, a, on adopting our mice. Um, now, I'd like to say that Meow Meow had uh, taken her place as the, as the new queen of the house, but the truth is, even her has somewhat already experienced some of what the mice have felt because the other day I was driving down the road and over there by Lake Kirby, off in the side of the bushes was this sweet little kitten. And now I'm a cat guy, so I had to stop and pick it up. And so now you meet Dave, the kitten, who's now replacing Meow Meow. So what's the, so what's the takeaway here? Well, we have some pet mice to give away. And if you're a pet at the Dozier house, you better not get comfortable because you are always at risk at being replaced by the next cute thing. I joke, um, but the truth is, sometimes we find ourselves in a spot like that. 
And it's a pretty uncomfortable place to be, a place where we risk being replaced by the better and the flashier and the more productive or maybe the more desirable person that seems to be coming up behind us. You know, I can imagine if mice had feelings, they wouldn't feel very good about their status in the Dozier house. Um, and, and we can empathize with that because we've all felt it. You know, I remember as a teenager, and I think a lot of our, our kids know this feeling, what happens when a new kid shows up at school? All of a sudden, everything is a little riskier and it's a little bit dangerous because maybe you're going to lose your top social spot or your starting role on the basketball team or on the baseball team. And all of a sudden, you're politicking for who's going to be the one that gets the attention and the affection. The, affection. Um, the same thing happens to us adults in our relationships and our work environment. A new guy shows up at work and everyone thinks they're hilarious and all of a sudden you've lost your top spot as the joker extraordinaire of the office. I'm hoping Daniel's not that funny because I kind of want to keep my, keep my status. Luke's probably the funniest one in the office. I don't know, Tyler. Yeah, Tyler, Tyler's got a long way to go, but we'll get him trained up. We'll get him trained up in the way of being funny. You know, there are certain places where we should never feel the pressure to be something we're not. Places where we should feel safe and irreplaceable. And that's marriage. But unfortunately, since the beginning of time, this institution that's meant to be the place of safety hasn't proven to be so over and over again. You know, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of your situations, and I know that there's a lot of you that are struggling in your marriages. I know there's a lot of you who maybe don't speak it out loud, but that worry maybe sometimes about being replaced in your marriage, and you're always striving to be the right thing for someone else. I know firsthand that there's a lot of you who have gone through the terrible experience of being replaced by someone else. And have felt firsthand the pain and brokenness of divorce. It's prevalent in our society. It's prevalent in the church. And it was prevalent in the time of Malachi. Today's passage, I believe, uses an example of marriage and divorce to connect us with some spiritual realities that I think we often fail to recognize. You know, I wonder sometimes why God so often uses marriage and even divorce as a metaphor and a parable in Scripture. And I think the reason is this, because it is a tangible and present reality of this broken world that we live in. You know, a lot of times this passage in Malachi chapter 2, especially verse 16, is is used as grounds for us to, to determine God's specific attitude about divorce, how he feels about it. Um... I'm not sure that, that that's the reason that this passage was provided to us. Um, I think at the very least, before we get to verse 16, we have to recognize that we have verses 10 through 15 to walk through. And as we walk through those verses first, I believe we can wrap our minds around the bigger picture of what God is talking about here in this very difficult passage. So I want to set our preconceived notions aside And I want us to walk through this passage sequentially and walk through it together. 
We're in the book of Malachi. It's the last prophetic word that was provided to the nation of Israel before the New Testament showed up, before John the Baptist showed up on the scene and quit soon after Jesus. They had just returned from Babylon captivity, and they're looking around back in the promised land where things are supposed to be going great, and things aren't like they expected they were going to be. And so the book of Malachi enters the scene, and what we have is this interaction back and forth between God and the people where they are expressing their concern for what they're seeing around them. And God, in a sense, is defending himself, and we see him do it in six different discourses. And today we're in the third of those. The first one, I believe, is the most foundational and the most important, and that's what we studied the first week. Because God steps in and he sets the scene by telling them, I have loved you. Now they question him on that. They don't feel like God was loving them in this moment. But God steps back and he says, hey, you need to understand, look back through the history of time. I chose. I chose you as my people. The purest form of love is choosing. And I have selected you. I have loved you. And then he goes on through the rest of Malachi to describe why they are experiencing the things they are experiencing despite his love for them. Last week we saw that they despised his name by giving him their, their leftovers, really, in their offerings. And I called you to, to really challenge yourself in what you're offering to God. What are your sacrifices looking, at, looking, looking like? How does your life reflect to the world the majesty of the God that we serve? This week we find that God accuses them of being faithless. And we're about to see what that means. We opened our worship with a reading from Malachi 2, 10 through 16. And we're going to read it again together. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. There are really two divisions in the text here with a similar theme. Verse 10 introduces that theme, and the idea that we're wrestling with is Israel's faithlessness. They were faithless to one another. And I believe that sets the, the tone and the purpose for the entire passage. So in a sense, we're going to look at this passage and see how this attitude of faithlessness plays out on the playing field. It would seem that this happens in two ways. Verse 10 through 12 discuss the first. Marriage to foreigners. And verses 13 through 16 discuss the second. And it's their unfaithfulness to the wife of their youth. 
Most likely, I think, in verse 10, we have Israel stepping in and asking this question. And in verse 11, God begins responding to them. So let's start with this first three verses, the initial question and then the response. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Well, here's the answer. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the first question I ask myself is, who is this Judah character that he's writing about? You see, Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think in this context, what God is doing is he is using Judah as a personification of a portion of Israel. In other words, Judah represents a portion of God's chosen people, and specifically a portion of God's chosen people who have made a a decision about who they're going to intermingle with. He is said here to have been faithless by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So who is the daughter of a foreign god that he married? We're not told specifically. But what exactly does that mean? Who's he referencing? Well, think with me here. If God is their father and the tribes of Israel, Judah, were the, were the sons of Israel, then I think it would follow that this daughter of a foreign god we're talking about would represent a subset of people who subscribed and served and worshipped a different god than the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. While verse 12 is translated pretty differently in different versions, the gist of verse 12 seems to be this. This particular intermarriage, this blending of God's people with people who would subscribe to another God, that is uh, damaging the future relationships that they were going to have with God himself. This is something that was not unfamiliar to the nation of Israel as a whole. In fact, in Ezra 9, we see that this was a problem that had literally happened in Israel. Um, that their priests had intermarried with these foreign women. And like so often throughout their history, when this introduction of other gods often entered the scene through intermarriage with those of a different culture and a different faith who hadn't rejected that culture and that faith and turned to God. It's a big contrast with the example we have of, for instance, Ruth. Ruth was a foreign woman, but she had denounced those other gods and turn to the Lord God that, that we worship and that they worship. So we see the language here in Malachi helps clarify for us some of the things that were happening. God wasn't opposed to interracial marriages. He was opposed to the introduction of foreign gods. He was opposed to the watering down of belief that happens when one of his people attached themselves to someone belonging to another god. But the problem here was... Was, um, was more than just the, the faithless actions of those who would introduce foreign gods into the sanctuary. Because you see, as we move into verse 13 and following, we see that even those who had, uh, had married rightly, you might say, were faithless to the covenant they had made. Starting in verse 13, it says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? 
Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. So who here is the you, and who is the, the wife of your youth? Who is the subject of this accusation? You know, last week we saw in verse 1 that he had shifted his focus to the priest. It may be, I mean, he talks a little bit about the altar. It may be that he is specifically talking to the priest here. Others argue that he's broadened the scope in verse 10 when all of Israel seems to have stepped in and asked a question, and now he's talking to all of Israel. But I think the, 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 the discernment there is, is really a mute point. It doesn't matter. What we need to know is that God is, is talking about this group of people. He is using the you, uh, maybe in a way that we would say, y'all. Okay? This, is the, this is the Texan talk would be, y'all. Y'all are the ones that are acting this way. Um, it is the collective group of his children that he is referring to. So how has this collective group of his children turned their back on and left the wife of your youth? Okay? The wife of our youth is a, not a super common phrase. We would be most familiar um, with it from Proverbs 5.18. It would have been their first original wife. In other words, this is the one that you grew up with, that you first came to love. This is your first love, the one that you committed to first. He later calls her your companion and wife by covenant. The word for companion is actually more often used of male friendships. And in other words, what the text is saying, this is more than just someone who you sleep with. This is someone who you are friends with. This is the person that you fell in love with, whose company you enjoyed, and who you made a commitment to. So as I look at this text, this was their first love. Who was the one that this group of people collectively had declared to be their first love? Well, it was most certainly God himself. He was the one that was there before these foreign gods showed up on the scene. The Lord God, creator of the universe. He was the wife of their youth that he's talking about here. The one that they grew up to know and to love and that they had made this commitment to. So as I take a step back and I look at the reality of the situation that's unfolding here in Malachi, here's what is happening. Israel is being unfaithful to God. They've brought in foreign gods They've rejected the commitment and covenant they made to him at the beginning. They've forgotten the affection and the friendship that they had with him at the beginning. And now they're weeping at the altar and they're saying, God, why aren't you accepting our offerings? And I ask you this question back. Would you accept the offerings of one who treated you that way? You see, it wasn't that God didn't love them. It was that they didn't love God. They rejected their union with him. They turned their back on him. The nation of Israel had divorced him, and in doing so, they had tainted their garments with violence. This is a really big deal, and it helps us make sense of this strong language that unfolds in verses 15 and 16. You see, in verses 15 and 16, he takes this spiritual transgression that we talk about, 
and he connects it with these very real experiences of the people. Did he not make them one, the text says, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Now we'll see here in a little bit, there's a lot of ambiguity on how these verses should be translated. Some of you may be following along from a different version, and it reads very differently. Here's what I believe that we can know. In these verses, God is using marriage as a parable and a pointer to spiritual realities. This is a common way to use marriage. In fact, it's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's writing about the church and he uses the marriage relationship between a husband and wife and what it's supposed to look like to paint these, this very clear picture for us of what the relationship between Christ and his church is. You see, I believe that, um, that this, this passage is not primarily about human relationships. It is about our spiritual relationship, about the spiritual relationship of Israel with God and how it is reflected in our human relationships. It is about the spiritual relationship of Israel with God and how it is reflected in our human relationships. As we look at this metaphorical language, we very much can associate with the idea of faithlessness. We're faithless to one another when we connect ourselves with other gods. We're faithless to one another when we disconnect ourselves from God himself. And the reality of the pain that we are aware of, the pain that we know that, that comes from these type of actions in our human relationships helps us understand and connect to the pain and violence that is done to us spiritually when we do the same things to God. You know, I really don't know exactly what verses 15 and 16 are meant to say in a technical sense. The truth is the original language in those verses is very unclear. And I don't think there's a translation that hasn't used a significant amount of interpretation in determining what they want to say. So I, I am by no means any sort of a scholar. I have no qualifications to make any sort of a determination on how either of those verses can be translated. But I think a good exercise for us to do is just to put, put them side by side with some common English translations that were probably pretty well um, respected and accepted by a lot of different people. I usually preach from the ESV. We have the New American Standard and the NIV that I also enjoy reading from, and I also sometimes use the New English translation. You're probably going to have a hard time seeing these. This was the only way I could get it on the screen, so you may have to do this on your own time. Um, but I wanted you to kind of see and compare the differences in verses 15 and 16. The reason I think this is important is because we've really latched on to a lot of these verses and used them to make a point. And I think we need to be careful doing that because really we're not quite sure what they were meant to say. 
In Malachi 2.15, for instance, the ESV says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? But the New American Standard says, but not one who has, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. The NIV says, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And the NET says, no one who has even a small portion of the Spirit in him does this. Now you can trace through the rest of these verses and see that there's a lot of differences in how each of these translating committees has decided to interpret it. The New American Standard seems to think that verse 15 is talking about how one who has the Holy Spirit shouldn't act this way. The ESV seems to think it talks about God making two one in marriage, and it's talking about that covenant. The NIV refers to one God who created us and wants godly offspring. So all of them seem to have a little bit of a different focus. And the same difficulties run into verse 16. I think that's already up on the screen. Verse 16 begins like this in the ESV. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. The New American Standard translates it this way. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. The NIV says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. And the NET says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and the one who is guilty of violence. So, so we have to ask ourselves, does the man who, not who does not love his wife divorce her and cover his garment with violence? Does God hate divorce and hate the violent man? Or does the man who hates and divorces his wife do violence to her? Truthfully, I don't, I don't know. Um, you read the translation notes from the NET, and, and they say this, that the verb appears to be a third-person person form he hates. But it makes little sense in the context unless one amends the following word to a third-person verb as well. Then one might translate, he who hates his wife and divorces her is guilty of violence. However, it's possible that the first-person pronoun has accidentally dropped from the text. If one restores the pronoun, the form can be taken as the participle and the text translated for I hate. That's way over my head. I had to read it a lot of times to wrap my mind around it. Here's what they're saying. The, the verbs don't match up. So we have to change something. For us to make it make sense in English, we have to change something. We can change the, the, the sense of a verb and make it make sense, or we can assume that there was a word that was left out and there was an error. And if we add that back, we can make it make sense. Here's the bottom line, and why I'll go through all of this. We don't know what it says, and I believe God makes clear what he means to say. God's view on divorce is interesting. It's nuanced. In fact, in Ezra 9 through 10, he commanded it. Makes us uncomfortable to talk about that. But the priest had brought in foreign wives, and it was undoing the spiritual growth. And he called them in and had them divorce those wives and leave them. He uses it metaphorically in Jeremiah 3, 7 through 9. Um, we're told that, that God speaks of himself having divorced Israel because of their spiritual adultery, him turning his back on them. And there were even provisions in the Old Testament law for divorce. We see that in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So while we are here at the end of Malachi trying to wrap our mind around God's take on divorce, I think it's possible he could have hated it still in all of these cases. 
I don't think that that's a, a terrible translation, but at the very least it reminds us that, that there are things that happen all the time that God hates, and yet he works them out for our good. Our view of divorce needs to consider the full counsel of Scripture. And here in Malachi, God's central concern was not to articulate his view on divorce or even the results of it. Instead, its mention was to help the people understand why he isn't accepting their worship. And it was because of their spiritual unfaithfulness. Church, God is painting a very clear picture for them. And he's basically saying, you know what this looks like. You know what the brokenness of broken covenants and broken relationships looks like. And yet you come to my altar and you treat me like this. You just replace me with these other gods. And then you have the gall to say, why don't you love me? God says, I do love you. You're the one that turns your back on me. You're the one that's covered your garment with violence. You know the, the pain and the brokenness that comes from divorce, and yet you're treating me like this when you bring in foreign wives and you cheat on me. So while we have often used this passage in a way that I think has really troubled some people who have gone through a divorce. I actually believe those of you who have been impacted by divorce are capable of understanding the point God is making more than those of us who haven't. Because you know firsthand the destruction and the pain that comes from that. And God says, just because this is spiritual and seems not as tangible to you doesn't mean it's not just as violent and painful to you spiritually when you turn your back on your first love, when you turn your back on me. So, I think that should be something we want to avoid with all of our might. This parable causes us to... Uh, to step in and say, okay, how do we guard ourselves so that we are not faithless? And so I think we need to ask ourselves a few application questions as we're winding down. How do we marry daughters of foreign gods? Man, we could go on and on about what this looks like. It comes, comes to us in a lot of different shapes, forms, and fashions. I think that culturally we have a tendency towards certain ideas or ways of thinking materialism for instance where we start to think that our value and our worth comes from the things that we have and the things that we own in those things we're going to find comfort and peace and security that's one of the ways that we join ourselves to foreign gods christian nationalism i think is one of those where we start believing we're going to find comfort and peace and security through our commitment to our country I think probably one of the most prevalent ones right now is individualism, thinking we're going to find comfort and security and peace when we finally figure out who I am and, and learn to be my authentic self. There's a lot of other ways we marry foreign gods. Often this looks like vices that we allow in and start to call them okay or good. I think pornography is a prevalent one that's slipping into our households. And a lot of people say it's okay because, after all, it's not sex. 
But, but, but porn is slipping in and, and destroying our families worse than affairs, and it reduces human beings to objects and our sexuality to a selfish and empty thing, um, empty release that's disassociated with everything in life that matters. And when we bring things like that in, when we, when we, when we bring in these foreign gods, when we see something in the world and the culture around us and we want to bring it in and blend it with what we have, then we have connected ourselves to foreign gods. So how are we unfaithful to the wife of our youth? To our companion, our wife, to the one who we are supposed to be friends with and share our bodies with. And I would say this, we are unfaithful to God, to the wife of our youth, when we stop enjoying him. When we stop giving ourselves to him and experiencing oneness with him. When we are so drawn to these other things. When we're so drawn to these foreign gods that we don't even want the first one anymore. You see, the Israelites had reduced divorce basically to an economic debate, and I think that we've done that oftentimes as well. But there's more than economics going on, and we know that. It's more than just a math problem. We're talking about friendship and integrity and commitment and generational faithfulness and the way those commitments impact children. God has committed himself to us, and we are the faithless ones when we turn our backs on him. We are unfaithful when we allow our spirit to slip away from him and we stop treating him like he's our companion and our lover. And when we breed with the world and when we fill his household with children of these affairs, when you bring in the daughters of foreign gods, it won't be long till you have turned your back on your first love. Here's a very, very important big picture takeaway. I think if we take a step back and we look at the entirety of Malachi, we see this. It is not that God stops loving us. But we often are guilty of cutting off our love for him. God hasn't turned his back on us. He loved us. He he chose us. He turns his back when we are faithless to one another, when we taint the Lord's family with foreign gods and turn away from the very things we commit to in our spiritual youth. I should say we turn our back when we do those things. So we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't wag our finger at God when we pursue these other things and then find that life isn't going for us like we thought that it should. When we end up let down, when we see that their beauty was fleeting and the pursuit of pleasure leaves us empty and joined to people who are not living under the protection and provision of God, when we wake up and see that, we should recognize that, that we are the ones that turned our back on God. We're the ones that have done violence. We're the ones that have been guilty of damaging this covenant relationship, not him. Divorce is a, a painful, difficult, messy thing. No matter what, it always is. If that's what we experience here in this physical world, even more so will we experience the negative effects of spiritual divorce and violence when we turn away from God and reject him for others. Perhaps you haven't guarded your spirit like you should have. You've been faithless to the God of your youth. Well, God has loved you. He's chosen a path for you, and even in this brokenness of ours, he died for our restoration. We can turn back to him, and he will take us back. And that's the beauty of the relationship that we have with him. But if you continue 
to tango with the gods of our culture, you will find that your faithlessness does violence to your spirit. So let's be a people committed to God, a people resolute toward keeping purity among us. Let's guard our spirit and our faithfulness to him. This morning, I'd like to offer an invitation. We stand prepared to baptize you. It's a sort of wedding ceremony, you might say, between you and Christ. It's not a commitment to be taken lightly. It is a lifelong one, and it changes you forever. If you're ready for that, the waters are ready. We would love to baptize you. If you need to study more, we would love to study with you. Or if you've made a commitment, but you have broken it, and you want to repent and be restored, we will pray for you and partner with you and walk with you in that. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.